So remember, my intent here is to discuss 80s and 90s electronic, industrial, and alternative music. And we've been talking about the elephants in the room, bands that dominated that kind of music in that time, bands that crossed over into mainstream popularity, bands that had a lasting legacy. The last time we spoke of one such elephant, it was the mighty Depeche Mode. However, they were just one, right? And I would be lax, nay remiss, if I were not to discuss the other elephant, uh, especially since I've referred to them in every episode so far. If we say that Uncle Al took the baton from Throbbing Gristle, we would have to say that this guy took the baton from Uncle Al and ran across the finish line and then went on to run an ultramarathon. And there's no point in my being coy about it because y'all read on the title of this video, you clicked on it, you're looking at the CD right now if you're watching on YouTube. Of course, I'm speaking of that guy who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2020, winner of multiple Grammys, an Oscar, a Primetime Emmy, various Golden Globes, and the Arby's Lifetime Supply of Curly Fries. Yes, you guessed it. I'm talking about the most famous revolting Cox roadie of all, Trent Reznor, and his popular music combo, Nine Inch Nails. Finally. Now, let's roll back to the very first time that I heard Nine Inch Nails. So we're going to step into the Wayback Machine, and once again, we will set it to that summer day, that fateful summer day in 1990, when I was visiting an older friend who played me New Order's Substance. Uh, He did play one other album that day, the first few tracks at least, and it was Pretty Hate Machine. Uh, My gang of friends all latched onto that album pretty hard. I mean, what was not to like? The band's name was awesome, uh, and they had a really cool logo, which was tremendously important. And we immediately started drawing that logo on everything, I have to say. We're pretty annoying about it. Uh, And the music was awesome. Um, It was like everything else we had heard in the 80s, but with harder drums and screaming. I mean, I had heard Ministry at this point, just Twitch, I think, but this was similar, but it was even more accessible. These songs weren't just built around arpeggiators and that one Fairlight orchestra hit that everyone used. Uh, There were more guitars, there were more dynamics, there were loud and quiet bits, there were more moods, there was actual singing and screaming. It wasn't just completely distorted. Uh, This guy was clearly upset. And as teenagers, we responded to that. I mean, it's easy to diss this album because of the sheer adolescence of it. And it, it takes a lot of baloney for that, especially in light of how Trent's career has evolved over the years. Obviously, he's matured as a person, and so has his art. But to us, this album just made sense. We were adolescents. Uh, You know, Trent was kind of whiny and emo, but so were we. So yeah, it made an immediate impression. It was, for us, the right album at the right time. Now, I made a tape copy of this, of course, Um, you know, back when I was a young teenager, I didn't have much of a music budget and that's just what we did. That's how we disseminated music for better or worse. And, you know, I listened to that whole thing over and over. Like I mentioned in the last episode, my copy of this didn't 
quite fit on one side of a 90-minute cassette. It didn't fit into that 45-minute side. So I never really heard the end of Ring Finger until some years later, which is funny. Uh, but for my friends and I, our industrial big three quickly became Ministry, Skinny Puppy, and Nine Inch Nails, pretty much in that order, with Knights Arab and Front 242 and the other Luxapan projects somewhere behind them. Now, we were high school seniors around this time. We were probably pretty obnoxious. We were pretty wrapped up in ourselves. Um, the gang I was in was largely a bunch of art nerds. Uh, so one guy had an airbrush. He was really talented. And he made, I remember he made a very cool T-shirt of this picture of Trent from the inner sleeve. And it looked just like that picture. And I thought that was really cool. So he managed to put that on a T-shirt. Um, we had, at the time, this year-long art club project that we were chipping away at. We were painting a huge mural downtown and this thing was like indoors and I want to say it was about 70 feet long or something like that. We'd go down to this building a couple times a week after school and sometimes it would just be the kids, which is funny to think, but sometimes the art teacher would be down there with us. But it was kind of like a party. Um, we'd all have step ladders and we'd be working to paint this thing. And I would bring my boom box and just blast whatever I felt like playing. So I, you know, was the guy musical taste or lack thereof on everybody else. And I'm positive that Nine Inch Nails, that this record, Pretty Hate Machine, was in that mix, along with all the other weirder stuff that we were listening to at the time. So uh, to me, this record is really intertwined with that and it really brings me back to a lot of fond memories of hijinks down there and fun adventures and I kind of wonder if that mural still exists but I have to think not. <laughs> um, but for us and for my group of friends there, Nine Inch Nails probably helped our self-esteem a bit. Uh, really, if you think about it, think about high school. I know we hate thinking about high school but the only subgroup in my high school that really advertised their love of music were the metalheads, in a way. And if you were a kid in the late 80s, early 90s, you knew these kids. They were immediately recognizable. They all had mullets. They all had denim jackets with some speed metal band on the back. And they wore their Megadeth and Metallica shirts and Anthrax shirts every day. You know, I sat behind one guy who I swear wore the same Megadeth shirt every day through the whole year, which uh, which in retrospect is maybe kind of sad. There might have been more going on there than a simple lack of, you know, wardrobe options. But um, it was a kick when we started putting Nine Inch Nails logos on, on everything, and the metalheads noticed that. And I remember there was kind of a moment of judgment there. You know, and I remember when they duly considered it and declared that Nine Inch Nails and Ministry were pretty cool. And yes, they announced that sounding exactly like Beavis and Butthead. And it turns out, actually, that Beavis and Butthead uh, was a documentary. Um, anyway, so we earned a little grudging respect there. And, you know, to be fair... The reverse was true. Us nerds were listening to Metallica and Anthrax too, albeit 
maybe more on the down low. We weren't like, you know, wearing our denim jackets or anything like that, but we enjoyed that stuff as well. Um, I knew though in my heart that ministry were every bit as hard as whatever metal band you wanted to name, uh, especially after the Mind album came out, uh, maybe even harder in some ways. Remember, we all thought Al at this point was a devil worshiper and probably a terrorist. And so therefore he was clearly cooler than some obvious weak poser like Dave Mustaine. So yeah, we got a bit of respect in the high school tough guy pecking order for liking these bands. Um, So imagine our surprise around that time when we discovered that Nine Inch Nails was on tour and that they were coming to the big city that winter. I had just reached the age where I realized I could actually see bands that I loved in person without my parents. Uh, and that was no easy feat because the logistics of that from where I grew up were were considerable. You had to have transportation. You had to know where you were going. You know, obviously, we didn't have smartphones with, uh, you know, the Google lady to tell you which way to go. Um, so it was it was considerable. And my folks, to their credit, had done their due diligence in raising me. We had been to a couple of shows growing up. I mean, I saw Shauna Na. Um, we saw Huey Lewis in the news at their peak in the early eighties. And that was a, it sounds silly and I'm not making fun of that at all, but that was actually a big deal to go see Huey Lewis in the early eighties was, <laughs> was, I don't even know what to compare that to. Cause I don't even know who's that, uh, like maybe like going to see Taylor Swift today. I mean, it was a huge arena tour and we were in the nosebleed section and they played all of those songs that I had heard on the radio 8 million times. And it gave me that experience of, you know, being in a concert audience. And it was awesome. But this was my chance to do my own thing. So plans were hatched. Tickets were purchased. And we went. And I'll never forget that night. Uh, three of us ended up going. And cheers to uh, one of my buddies who I know occasionally listens to this if you're out there. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, unfortunately, we drove out in a really small front wheel drive car. I think it was like a Plymouth Sundance. That's what sticks in my head. And there was a huge snowstorm coming. So again, we're in the Northeast United States, um, plenty of snow, lake effect snow. Did that deter us? Hell no. Uh, despite our parents' objections, we just jumped in the car and took off. And of course, there was almost immediately a whiteout. Uh, halfway there, things were looking pretty dicey. Uh, we were sliding all around the road. We couldn't see. In fact, all three of us piled in the front seat so we could get better traction, which didn't amount to much. And the only other vehicles on the road were the plows. That's how we knew we were possibly in trouble here. And, you know, we were concerned about plows crashing into us. Fortunately, what happened was, um, we fell in behind one and, you know, he plowed the way for us and was laying down cinders, so we, we scuttled along behind him and were able to make it to the big city. And I'm sure that I had to stop at a gas station uh, to use a payphone to let my parents know that I was still alive. I don't remember that, uh, <laughs> but that certainly would have been expected at some point. I do remember getting to the venue finally, which was way the hell downtown, of course, with, you know, warehouses all around. I'd visit this club quite a bit in my college years, and I'd see a bunch of bands there, and it was a great little club. But this was my first time in 
being in such a place. And it was pretty wild. And I think we got there late. We missed the opening band, if I'm remembering correctly. And I, I know my buddy will, you know, he's already pointed out a few times where my, my memory's been lacking. But wow, it's a long time ago, 30 years ago. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that D. Warzaw and ChemLab opened, which is a heartbreaker because I would have loved seeing both of those bands. In fact, there was another time that I had just missed seeing D. Warzaw down there too, now that I think about it. Um, never did see them. But this was the Sin Tour, obviously, um, which was the second or third tour that Trent did for this record. And I remember that, definitely remember that it was Trent and Rich Patrick on guitar and that Rich had his hair spiked way up. Um, I don't remember if there was someone on drums or not. Wikipedia tells me it was Jeff Ward, uh, RIP Jeff Ward, uh, great drummer for many Luxa Pan related efforts, uh, and that Lee Mars was on keyboard. I don't remember either of those guys at all. They might have been there, but remember, I was a kid and I was pretty well overwhelmed just being in the same room as this band. Uh, I do remember to this day that I noticed that they played every song from Pretty Hate Machine except Kinda I Want To. And strangely enough, Setlist FM confirms that. And it also tells me that they played Suck. I don't remember that, but if they did, I wouldn't have recognized it anyway, since the Pig Face album wouldn't be released for a few months and Broken wouldn't come out for another year or so. So I kind of wonder if they really did play it. I guess someone said they did. Who knows? But they also played Get Down, Make Love, and I'm sure we recognize that because we had all heard that track on the Sin single, which I'll talk about uh, more in a bit. But I think we were all pretty freaked out, and we didn't jump in the pit and mosh or anything. I seem to remember us hanging out by the main board, just sort of in the, the middle back of the room, just sort of taking it all in. Um, you know, we were, what, 17 or 18, so guys from generally from the the small town you know we weren't we weren't too crazy I think I did buy a nine inch nails hat at that show and I think I still have it somewhere deep in the archives it was like this black painter's cap with a black nine inch nails logo on it it was pretty cool pretty subtle but after the show we split right away uh, we had to get back through the snow so there was no effort to like hang out afterwards but it was a real adventure, and it cemented my love for this band. And, you know, now I could say that I saw them way back when, when they were just getting started in 1990. Uh, the next time I would see them live would be in the big city once again, but that would be four years later on the Downward Spiral Tour. And it would be in a giant packed arena, not a club. And, yeah, quite of a quite a different experience, not even close to the same experience. So it was awesome to be able to see some version of Nine Inch Nails in a, a very small club. But yeah, my first live industrial show, it made a huge impression. And my friends and I, we were fully converted. Um, so at the time, we wanted to know who were Nine Inch Nails. Again, this was pre-web, uh, but we quickly figured out that the band was just one guy with a few folks helping in the studio and live. And, you know, again, this blew our tiny minds. Uh, this guy was clearly the next Al Jorgensen, right? Because on Twitch it said, Ministry is Al Jorgensen, or Alan Jorgensen. And on Pretty Hate Machine it said, Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor, period. And that 
was impressive. One person had put all of this together. Uh, so where else did we get our information? We had the liner notes here, of course, which are actually pretty good. Had uh, basic info and the lyrics. We had the videos for Down In It and Head Like a Hole, which were on MTV. They were pretty much in heavy rotation at that point in time. And, you know, more than most other industrial artists around that time, Trent got a lot of press. So he was really the true crossover artist in that genre. Uh, there were MTV interviews, there were magazine articles, and it was obvious his star was just on the rise. He had he had a wider appeal than most other industrial rock bands at the time. And, and I have a few ideas of why that is that I can talk about in a bit. But in the studio, according to these liner notes, he had help from Flood, who was someone that we had heard of from other records. He uh, Flood did some of the production. And also uh, Adrian Sherwood and Keith LeBlanc were on there too, and they were credited with helping Al with Twitch, so there was a connection there to what we already knew. And we found out through interviews that Trent grew up in northwestern PA and then moved to Cleveland, which was his big city, which wasn't terribly far from us. So apart from everything else, we had this idea in our minds that he was a local boy who made good. One more reason to like him. So let's talk about this album a little more closely. Um, the title. So strangely, I haven't heard the title discussed very much. I think people just take it, uh, you know, on face value, or maybe the meeting is just a lot more obvious than I thought as a kid. But, you know, looking at it in hindsight now, my take on the title is that it's sort of a very emo diss of a girl or like a possible love interest. You know, it's not quite misogynistic, but it's, it's like along those lines, you know, and it's something that an angry teenage guy might think. You can just imagine teenage Trent writing bitter love poetry about how some girl did him wrong, you know, and maybe he goes up to her at her locker the next day with all his buddies egging him on. And he's like, you're such a pretty hate machine. And all the guys go, Ooh, I mean, that's, <laughs> it's absurd, but it's practically a scene in a John Hughes movie right there. I mean, it writes itself. So yeah, that, interpretation is corny and stupid uh, and cringy, as they say. But again, it's in line with most of the lyrics on this record. And it's a very emo record, right? Um, not terribly subtle. All the lyrics are about dissatisfaction and being let down and not being able to control your emotions or your desires. And, uh, you know, I didn't really think about what the title meant until recently, and as a kid, I certainly never gave it a second thought. And if I had, I probably would have been like, well, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Um, the artwork, not a lot going on here. Um, the photo is actually a distorted circular saw, I understand. Um, I heard recently that the original artwork went missing. So when they did the remaster a few years back, they had to try to just recreate it. Like they had to go out and buy another, buy another saw blade or table saw and just take another picture completely because the original was gone. Uh, that black and blue and pink color scheme now is pretty much iconic and 
screams out to any Nine Inch Nails fan that uh, it's pretty hate machine. And I'll sometimes see that color combo and immediately think, oh, yeah, Nine Inch Nails, of course. Um, so there's that distorted uh, picture of Trent here that we saw before. Uh, and the famous Nine Inch Nails logo, uh, very successful design. It was designed by, I think, Gary Talpas, if I remember correctly. And reportedly, it was inspired by the cover of Talking Heads' Remain in Light, another uh, classic album. And I used to own that album, but I evidently sold it or lost it because I could not find it in my collection. Uh, but yeah, other than that, you have some lyrics and credits and stuff like that. Pretty good package of info, uh, especially considering that we were used to Wax Tracks releases that pretty much had nothing but the cover art on them. So that was sort of extensive. We like that. Uh, if we go down through the tracks here, we'll just talk about these one at a time. Uh, just throw some thoughts out there about the tracks that make up Pretty Hate Machine. So obviously it starts off with Head Like a Hole. This track is iconic. It's timeless. Maybe the best opening track of all time on any album. I mean, you know, 30 years later, Trent can still get away with playing this as an encore. And the, the fans will leave satisfied if he plays Head Like a Hole. Uh, that's how great of a song that really is. And Terrible Lie, the second track. This is a pretty good one-two punch. You know, Trent, Trent is mad at God and cusses him out. And we've all been there, right? But as kids, we were like, right on. And this song still gets played pretty regularly at concerts. Uh, it it still, still hits, and he's kind of put a few spins on it in recent years, too. So worth checking that one out live. Down In It is track three. Uh, I think this is the first song he ever wrote. And he straight up admitted he did it as a ripoff of Dig It by Skinny Puppy. Um uh, it's not really confirmed, but it was always pretty obvious to me that the lyrics were drug-related. Uh, Sanctified, this groovy, down-tempo song with this great synth bass line, um, seems to be his attempt at justifying having sex. Something I Can Never Have, it's the ballad on the album. It's very emo, so emo. I mean, we could all relate. Every, every one of us who had ever been dumped at a pizza hut. Um, if nothing else, this is a song that we knew would never have appeared on a Ministry or Skinny Puppy album. So it's something that helped distinguish Nine Inch Nails uh, from some of those other bands. And it's worth noting that this song had the first of the album's two F-bombs, and that was important to know when you were just a little kid blasting this with your parents in the next room. Uh, the next track was kind of I Want To. Again, Trent kind of wants to have sex. Hard to believe, but what could go wrong, right? Sin, uh, great track. Uh, also about sex. Uh, a bit more harder hitting. Um, this would be the third single and one of my favorite tracks on this record. It's just a great song. That's what I get. Uh, that's what I get for trusting your cheating heart, you hussy, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly the, same, the kind of song that is. The only time 
this one starts with the second very obvious F-bomb. I remember hovering over the volume knob, kids. It was an anxious time back in the early 90s. And finally, uh, probably the most interesting song on here, the last track is Ring Finger. And it might be the darkest track lyrically. And to us as kids, it was a bit of a head scratcher. Um, and read the lyrics or listen to this song and try to figure out what's going on. And it was really a hint at where Nine Inch Nails would go in the future, especially on their next release, which was quite different, quite different from Pretty Hate Machine. But my overall impression of this record through the years uh, is that it's very cohesive. It's very much all of a piece, musically and lyrically. It covers a lot of ground. There's a lot of different moods and textures on here. Uh, more so, for sure, than like a Ministry album, as much as I love Ministry, or Skinny Puppy, for that matter. There's just there's just more range here. And, pardon me, that said, it, it does sound a bit dated now. Um, compared to some of his later work, the guitars are not as evident. Uh, the synth work is more obvious. But remember, this was 1989 when he wrote this uh, and recorded it, and I didn't hear it for another year or so. So this album kind of came out, and I think it was a slow burn, right? It wasn't immediately popular, which is kind of hard to remember in retrospect, but it took a few years for this record to really sink in. And by 1991, I think the world was opening up to Nine Inch Nails, um, and, and all of this was coming together for Trent. Remember that in 1989, the rest of the world was drowning in Madonna and Debbie Gibson and the fine young cannibals. So compared to that kind of stuff, this hit pretty hard and it was pretty close to the mark uh, for us as fans, what we wanted to hear. And it's not really just fair to compare it to Nine Inch Nails later work or to industrial rock in general. Uh, there were three singles from this record and the first, which was the first Nine Inch Nails release ever was the single for Down In It. Um, I don't actually have that on CD, but Trent gave each of his releases a Halo number, and Down In It was Halo 1. Uh, we quickly figured out that's what was going on here. And it had three mixes of Down In It. So there was like the album version and then two remixes. Uh, Pretty Hate Machine came out as Halo 2, and somewhere on here... It actually says that. Ah, yeah, on the disc itself, it says Halo 2. Okay. Okay, and the Head Like a Hole single was Halo 3. So I have that here. This is an interesting single because it has, it says 10 track, but it actually has uh, 11 tracks on it. So this has four versions of Head Like a Hole, two versions of Terrible Lie, it has this sort of dub version of Head Like a Hole called You Know Who You Are. Uh, three versions of Down In It. Uh, two of those were the remixes from the Down In It single. So if you had Pretty Hate Machine and the Head Like a Hole single, you kind of didn't need the Down In It single, unless you're a crazy completist collector like I am, but somehow I still don't own it. Uh, there was also a pretty interesting demo version of Down In It, on the Head Like a Hole single as well. And it 
I wonder if it was maybe the first recording that Trent ever did as Nine Inch Nails. And a uh, pretty cool demo version. Finally, uh, there's a three-second hidden track of someone just saying, Nine Inch Nails, woo, they're good. And that was the whole track. So I think it was from some TV show that they just clipped that from. So that was Halo 3. And then the Sin single was Halo 4. Yep, there we go. Halo 4. So... I like this single. It has some clever typography on the cover. Um, it's got three mixes of Sin. I don't think any of those three mixes are exactly like the album version either. So I think there's a long mix, a short mix, and a dub mix of Sin. But more importantly, it has that cover of Get Down, Make Love by Queen that we heard at the uh, at the concert. And it was produced by... Al Jorgensen. So again, Al had his hand in a lot of music production in these days, and so did Paul Barker. Uh, both of them, you know, usually got credited as Hypo Luxa and Hermes Pan, respectively. So here, Al is credited as Hypo Luxa. Um, and it's important to remember that at this time, Trent had just toured with the Revolting Cox in the summer of 1990, so we knew he was pretty good friends with Al. And I've read that Trent was generally a roadie on that tour and went because the Cox passed through Cleveland and Trent said, hey, can I just come with you guys? And Chris Connolly, again, wrote about that in his excellent autobiography or his memoir of his time in Revco. And I encourage everybody to, to pick that up. It's, if you're at all interested in that, in that period of uh, industrial music, you owe it to yourself to read that book. Good stuff. Um, but yeah, I heard he was generally a roadie, but it wouldn't be a stretch to think that Trent moved into performance, either singing or playing guitar or something else, because Revco was, as we know, pretty much a free-for-all compared to ministry. I have no evidence, though, that he did perform with them, but I know there are two picks of Revco around this time that include Trent, and you can Google those and see those for yourself. It's kind of funny. Um... In one of them, Trent looks like he's about 17, too, which is great. So let's go back to Pretty Hate Machine. You know, why do I love this album? Um, it's just a classic. I mean, this is where Nine Inch Nails started. You know, one of the most influential rock bands in general. Um, and, and the longevity of them has been just amazing. You know, over, it's a pushing 35 years now. And they just seem to get more and more sophisticated and more, uh, you know, adventurous in their music as time goes on. Um, at this time, the influence of this particular record was to push industrial music closer to being radio friendly, which is something that we knew that Ministry and Skinny Puppy would never really do. Um, and that was a controversial thing at the time. This was a controversial album among the fans, you know, and I would get on the internet shortly after this album came out. Uh, I mentioned Usenet before and the group rec.music.industrial or RMI. And it was clear on RMI that bands like Ministry and Skinny Puppy and then Nine Inch Nails started the schism among industrial fans by pulling the genre toward more of a pop sound. And 
for sure, Nine Inch Nails exacerbated that, you know, and that's where I learned what a flame war was, right? People on RMI arguing about whether Nine Inch Nails was good or not. So this album made it okay for something with an industrial label to express a wider range of emotion. And for Trent, those emotions wouldn't stay childish much longer. His next few releases would take things in an entirely new direction, much harder, much darker. Um, For me, I could see taking another whole episode to talk, uh, you know, about Broken and Fixed, which were the next two EPs. Uh, But to be honest, uh, after that, I lost the plot with Nine Inch Nails for a period of time. Um, Trent's career has covered many decades, many projects, many styles. Not all of them are to my own taste. Um, That makes him better in a way as an artist in my mind because it tells me that he's pushing boundaries and he's challenging listeners. He's not just a one-trick pony And for better or worse, he's not trying to be a band like ACDC or KMFDM. And I talked about that in the KMFDM episode. There's nothing wrong with bands like that. People like what they like, but that just wasn't Nine Inch Nails. Uh, And Trent is just the kind of artist who's never satisfied, right? So Nine Inch Nails wouldn't really reach the pinnacle of the industry like Depeche Mode and you know U2 did around this time, but they would become an influential and important band, uh, not unlike The Cure, sort of if The Cure had only kept releasing studio albums, uh, or Depeche Mode for that matter. Um, but Depeche Mode arguably became a different band, I'd say in the mid-90s after Alan Wilder left and a bunch of producers ended up taking his spot. Uh, But Nine Inch Nails has kept going with remarkable consistency. And maybe the key there is that they're really just one person. So band dynamics have played less of a role in what Trent is doing. And it's always clear with whoever's in the group at the moment or whoever's playing with them who the boss is. And that's given them staying power over the years. It's really a, a, a sole proprietorship. So where are they now? Of course, you know, Nine Inch Nails still going strong 35 years later. Um, At the start of this, I listed a bunch of awards Trent has collected, and those are all true. You know, even the Arby's lifetime supply of curly fries, not really. Um, He has managed to pull off that coveted shift to scoring major motion pictures, and that is desirable, I think, among a certain segment of current and former pop musicians in a post-Napster and, you know, BitTorrent and post-COVID world. Scoring movies is, you know, artistically uh, satisfying. It's a reliable way to make money without having to tour. Um, It also can confer a level of respect that you don't get when your main gig involves getting in costume and jumping around a stage for an hour and a half, right? Um, But the fact is there are only so many major motion pictures and few people who can get those kind of gigs. And maybe the only other musician I can think of from that era who's in that game and really killing it is Clint Mansell from Pop Will Eat Itself. 
I mean, if you watch clips of Papalita itself from back in the day, <laughs> they're a pretty interesting band. And, you know, also produced by Flood, wore some crazy costumes, crazy hairstyles. You would never think that Clint would go on to be a film composer, a, com- a film composer who has international renown. Uh, but there you are. He is, you know, and very successful at that. Uh, very talented guy. So as I said, I would lose the plot with Nine Inch Nails around 1994, shortly after the Downward Spiral came out. Now, I did enjoy that album somewhat, but not. If I'm being honest, it wasn't to the extent that I enjoyed Pretty Hate Machine or even broken. Uh, I did see Nine Inch Nails on that tour, as I said, in the big arena, and it was a pretty good show. Um, Manson opened for them. Uh, That guy just seemed like a giant butthole to me. He was provocative for the sake of being provocative, and I think, you know, he staged this thing where the cops dragged him off, and, you know, honestly, I just saw him as Ogre Light at the time, and I'm not a Manson fan. I never really listened to his stuff, so whatever. I wasn't into him. Um, but for me, Ooh, I I should point out on that show, they did close with head like a hole and it was awesome. (laughs) But for me, nine inch nails was all about, you know, the aggression and the beats. Like personally, that's what I wanted out of it. I wasn't really into his nuances of sound design. And I think to some extent that's still true to this day. That's kind of what I'm enjoying out of his music. And the problem I saw with the downward spiral was uh, I just sensed Trent going way up his own behind, you know, becoming more like a a prog rock kind of guy. And I saw it in the music itself. I mean, he straight up had Adrian Blue on that record, who's one of the gods of prog rock, right? Uh, and nothing wrong with that, but it was clear where things were heading, right? And that record, he's, he, Trent said that record was influenced by David Bowie and Pink Floyd, and I love Bowie and especially Pink Floyd, huge fan, but I didn't necessarily want to hear that when I was listening to Nine Inch Nails. Um, I also got that in the remixes that started coming out around that time. Uh, they seem to have increasingly pretentious names like Eraser, Denial, Realization, and Closer, Further Away. I mean, it just started seeming a little silly to me. And then the remix albums. Like, now every album had to have a remix album and singles. So it kind of started with uh, Fixed, which was the remix album for Broken. And I I liked Fix. It, it, It was okay. Um... But now for the Downward Spiral, you know, you had three or four singles and you had a remix album and it just seemed like there were 60 or more tracks together for that single album. And as a collector, it became a huge pain in the ass for me to try to track them all down. And it seemed like some opportunistic consumerism was going on here, some marketing like the record company started splitting some of the singles into parts one and two. And, you know, as a young guy with a limited budget and patience for this kind of stuff, I just like noped out of it. It just seemed to be getting a little too involved for me. 
Um, and I, I think that pattern might have been borne out for the next few albums. They they were a little more progressive in the sense of prog rock. Uh, the Fragile was a double album. That's very proggy, right? Um, With Teeth was another thing, and I know almost next to nothing about that album. Year Zero, I knew, was tied to some involved alternate reality game, which, I don't know, it just struck me as silly. It, it just didn't interest me at all. Um, so I saw nothing from what little leaked to me from those records to kind of pull me back in. But I did pick them up again around 2006 when they did The Slip. It was somewhere around there. Uh, maybe because he chose to give that album away. So someone tipped me off to it and I downloaded it. I had nothing to lose by checking it out. Um, and I found that it was back to basics music. It was a really stripped down album. There were like three minute songs on there. It was simple instrumentation. There wasn't a lot of nuttiness, like very, very little silliness on that record. And something about that approach appealed to me. Um, and he did the ghosts one through four albums around that time too. I think it was just before uh, the slip came out, if I'm remembering correctly. But again, that project struck me as being very original. Um, and as an IT guy, I appreciated that I was able to listen to those ghosts records while working. They were, you know, put me in a good headspace. They, I could appreciate them in different ways than I would just music with a lot of shouted lyrics on them. So I guess I was back on the Nine Inch Nails bus around that time. And when Hesitation Marks came out, I was ready to fully jump back in. And I, I bought that album, listened to it over and over, loved it. I saw them on that tour. I think it was 2013 or so. And it was probably, it was, it was definitely the most mind-blowing show I've ever seen. Uh, it was really well done. And maybe I'll talk more about that sometime. Uh, but I don't think I ever listened to the three albums I skipped. Maybe I should do that and film one of these stupid reaction videos. <laughs> you know, guy listens to Nine Inch Nails after 20 years and reacts. Give me a break. Um, if I really am stretching my memory, I might have listened to them once. I think a friend let me borrow them around 2015 or so when he was shocked that I hadn't heard them yet. But I gave it back. I have no impression. If I did listen to them, it, it left no impression at all. Uh, so I know in a way that there will be more Nine Inch Nails for me to discover at some point, even if Trent stopped releasing music today, if, if I could be bothered to go back and listen to it. So for me, it's maybe a little insurance policy that there's always going to be something more that I can discover uh, with this band. So what else did they do? I was on board for the EP trilogies, which which uh, started in 2016. They were they were all right um, to me. There were some hits and misses on there, but you know every track doesn't have to be what I want to hear, and I could appreciate that. So pretty interesting releases overall. Um, but at this point, I had maybe a better appreciation for how Trent was stretching out, and he had brought Atticus Ross into the band and. You know, I definitely listened to each of those EPs more than once. Um, I found them interesting. So that's about all I have to say about Pretty Hate Machine specifically. I might 
discuss some more Nine Inch Nails in the future. Uh, but they remain, I think, you know, in my mind, one of the top three industrial bands of all time, if for no other reason than their sheer influence and longevity, right? They're still creatively viable. And, you know, I, I can't say that uh, about a lot of the bands that I've talked about so far. These are all bands that I love, but to still be creatively viable 30, 35, 40 years later, you know, as good as some of your music may have been, that's not easy to do. And Nine Inch Nails are still out there doing it. And I can honestly say I'm still a fan. Um, in just so many cases, bands change direction or they lost steam or maybe I just couldn't be bothered as a fan to keep up with them. But for now, I'm still aboard that Nine Inch Nails bus and I look forward to seeing where they go next. So there you have it, kids. Another one of the uh, elephants in the room, Nine Inch Nails. That's all I've got for you today. If you dug this, stick around. I have a huge mu music collection and I have plenty more old 80s and 90s albums to consider. This show is Stronger Than Reason, and it's available on YouTube and as a podcast, wherever you do that podcast thing. And if you like what you heard, please do what the kids say. Like and subscribe. And I'll remind you, I'm just one guy with an opinion. You know, consider leaving yours as a comment. And until next time, stay strong. <laughs>